Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me. Okay. Where have we gone the last couple weeks? A couple weeks ago, we started talking about some of the leaders of the cartels in Mexico. We talked about uh, El Mencho. We talked about El Mayo. And today, we're going to talk about Los Chapitos and El Chapo. And I'll explain in a minute why I grouped those together. And what we're trying to do is take a look at the leadership of the primary cartels in Mexico today. Certainly, in no way suggesting that if you take these three, you covered the territory of leadership in cartels in Mexico. Not trying to assert that at all. But if we're starting to study cartels, the drug wars in Mexico, public policy, a good starting point is an understanding of these three leadership groups, these leaders, and then to really discuss in detail the cartels that they operate, the cartels that they are battling against, and then that gives us a good perspective to understand of what's going on in Mexico. So that's the, the setup for this. Now, we're going to talk about El Chapo with Los Chapitos because I think in a lot of respects, they're interrelated, not just familially, but because the structure, the alliances, the feuds that started with El Chapo have, to a large extent, been maintained by Los Chapitos and uh, so you have to you have to understand the first to understand the second. Couple of of important notes. Number one, we are not going to turn this into a six hour podcast today, and we could spend a lot of time talking about El Chapo. You know, when you talk about famous or infamous cartel leaders. You you have the Rafael Caro Quintero, um, Felix Gallardo group in the early '80s in in Guadalajara. Obviously, very very significant. And then you have, to some extent, then you have El Chapo, and El Chapo really changed the way cartel leadership and cartels were viewed in the public. And changed the way the relationship between cartels and the government and the government of Mexico, the government of the United States, how all that um, played out. And, and um, you know, I don't think he was ever viewed as a hero, even in, in parts of Mexico. Certainly not the way maybe you want to say like Pablo Escobar, you know, Don Pablo the Good. But he had this allure to him, and um, in some respects, as I've talked about before, that may have led to his demise. But it makes him a fascinating character. Lots has been written around, about him, lots of discussions and things, you know, um, movies, miniseries, books, characters in you know Narcos Mexico and stuff. 
in the past, I've implored you to be very, very careful about social media, right? Things get repeated that just aren't true. That's also true with respect to El Chapo, right? In the last couple of days, I've looked at, at books written about him by reputable journalists. I've looked at articles in Fortune Magazine, in Newsweek, other things like that that simply contain material that is not true. And it seems to me the farther back you go, you know, the older in time, the more things get repeated that aren't true. For example, you can read in many, many, many places the discussion about Buffalo and Agent Camarena participation in the raid on Buffalo and and how that was uh, a, a seminal moment in El Chapo's relationship to Buffalo and, and the operations and everything else, all of which is not true. Okay? So just be very, very careful. One of the things that, again, is difficult is when, especially when you're going back, 1985, 1990, you know, it's it's not like there was a whole lot of social media. There wasn't you know press reports. People weren't taking notes. You know they did. El Chapo didn't have a camcorder, follow, you know, following him around recording things. So what you end up with are a lot of anecdotal evidence, which is an oxymoron in and of itself. You know the the plural of anecdote is not data. The mere fact that stories get repeated over and over doesn't make them true. So just have some skepticism. So when we talk today, number one, when we talk about El Chapo, we're going to go kind of quickly through some of the history because, again, we, we don't want to uh, be here all day. Number two, and I think this is really important, is I've tried to point out and pick out facts that I think are virtually indisputable. And if there are things that are controversial, I'll try to point those out as we go along. All right. El Chapo. Joaquin Atrevaldo Guzman Loera, born in Sinaloa, April 4, 1957, probably. I think everybody's settled on that now. For a while, there was some contention that he was actually born on... Christmas Day. Again, I think that is more propaganda than anything else, and people have generally settled on uh, April 4. He was, uh, of course, born in a uh, small town in Sinaloa, rural community, poor, and probably had a pretty crappy um, upbringing. And um, at some point, he, he got the name El Chapo because he's uh, short and stocky. Uh, so that that's where the name comes from. About five, six, I think, is, is what he's generally regarded as. At some point in his teenage years, he left uh, his hometown and went to go to work for his uncle. Now, his uncle is somebody by the name of Pedro Aviles Perez. And Aviles Perez is one of the key 
old world, old school, OG drug traffickers in Mexico. He's generally regarded as one of the first to really begin bringing marijuana into the United States from Mexico. And he's generally regarded as the first to use planes to do that. More importantly, kind of in, in this history, remember when we talked about the the alleged Guadalajara cartel, and I told you at the time that um, at the time that this alleged cartel was working, the DEA didn't use that term. Nobody around the time of of Agent Camarena said Guadalajara cartel, right? That came up afterwards. During the time they were investigating the alleged cartel, the Guadalajara cartel, they called it La Familia. Why? Because almost everybody had some interfamilial relationship. And Pedro Aviles Perez had connections to a lot of these people, including, most particularly, Miguel Angel Felix Gajardo. In addition, Ernesto Fonseca and Rafael Caro Quintero had worked for Aviles, as had uh, Hector Palma, who was also um, very prominent in the early formations of what became the Sinaloa cartel. Okay. So Guzman leaves or El Chapo leaves his hometown, starts to work with, um, starts to work with Perez. Perez gets um, arrested in 1979 or gets killed. I'm sorry. In 1979 ish. And, Shortly after that, um, and actually, is that right? Is it 79? <laughs> Let's see. Um, 78. 78. Sorry. All right. But so what happens is lots of drug dealers, including Felix Gajardo, including Rafa Caracantero, including El Chapo, who, who wasn't at that level but that time. But they were all working for Aviles. He gets killed. They all kind of end up migrating to Guadalajara. Why? Guadalajara is much, much nicer than Sonora, okay? Um, and, you know, uh, there are still people today who tell me they live in, in areas around Guadalajara and they don't have central heating or central air because the weather is always perfect. It was a much nicer place. It also was vibrant, especially if you were young, you know, it, it had nightclubs, it had uh, other things going on. So they moved to Guadalajara and that's when the, a lot of the, the, the story we know, right, really develops. And at some point, Guzman El Chapo finds himself working with um, Felix Gallardo or working for Felix Gallardo. Um, he worked as a chauffeur. He um, worked on uh, logistics. He was a cleaner or a fixer at various points. 
then again, we talk, we get to a whole bunch of apocryphal and, and stories. Maybe he had some relationship with Juan Mata Ballesteros. Maybe he had some relationship with uh, Colombian cartels. Don't really know. Okay. Um, but what we do know is that in 1985, February 7, 1985, Agent Camarena was abducted outside the consulate in Guadalajara, was um, taken to the house at 881 Lope de Vega, was tortured, interrogated, and eventually killed. And that led to a lot of activity, right? So immediately, Rafa leaves Guadalajara, goes to Caborca, then goes to, to Costa Rica. In April of that year, he's arrested. Fonseca leaves, goes to Puerto Varda. April of that year, he and 25, 26 others are arrested. Felix Gardo kind of goes undercover a little bit and um, survives for a while. At that point, apparently, uh, El Chapo starts doing more and more for uh, for Felix Gardo, and it becomes a little bit more, along with Palma, um, I'll say, um, you know, more key lieutenants for Felix Gardo. Felix Gardo eventually gets arrested in 1989, and initially it looks like he's going to be able to run everything from the uh, from prison. That idea eventually is uh, dispelled, and in 1989 there is uh, allegedly this meeting between in Acapulco between some of the heads of the plazas and that was it was kind of the plaza system before it became the cartel system that's a very simple oversimplification but there ends up being this meeting and what comes out of the meeting is a separation of power between certain new cartels and new groups or a more formal delineation of who controls what areas and routes Okay, and you end up with a situation where the Ariano Felix brothers form the Tijuana Cartel, also known as the AFO. And remember, um, you know we we had uh, Steve Duncan from the California Department of Justice, who was on a couple of weeks ago, gave a, gave a great great description of the AFO and and things, but they. Um, they are given that territory. I hate given, but you know they come out of it with that territory clearly defined as theirs. Keep in mind, as Mr. Duncan told us, the story that you see everywhere that the Ariano Felix brothers were nephews of Felix Gallardo is not true. Everybody says it is, but it's not true. All right. Um, in Chihuahua, you get the Carrillo Fuentes family. They kind of form the Juarez cartel. Uh, and then you have the Sinaloa cartel, sometimes referred to as the Pacific cartel. 
really hard to know for sure exactly the timing of all of this. But basically, when you get done, you know, take this meeting, take the, the delineation of the Sinaloa cartel, the Pacific Coast area and Sinaloa. Within a, a short period of time, you really end up with three primary leaders. You have El Mayo, you have uh, Palma, who we already talked about, and you have El Chapo. And story is that at some point, El Chapo really becomes responsible for the the areas in Baja California, Mexicali, that area. Uh, again, I, I I hesitate to say that with very much authority because, uh, you know, again, it's not like they were taking notes. It's not like there was, you know, formal things that say, hey, here's what we're going to do. All right. What happens very soon after Felix Gallardo is arrested is there becomes a blood feud, literally, between the Tijuana cartel and the Sinaloa cartel, most particularly El Chapo. And what's interesting is however you look at that leadership between uh, Palma, Almayo, and Guzman, uh, El Chapo, you know, you, however you look at it, it seems that most of the antagonistic, for lack of a better word, the you know the rivalries, the battles, the the, the narco wars, um, really stems from or starts with El Chapo. Not that he starts everything, but you don't hear about you know the back and forth between the the Ariano Felix brothers, you know, Ramon and Benjamin, um, they don't talk to each other or they don't talk about the battles with them and El Mayo. It's always with El Chapo. So 1989, thereabouts or so, you really end up with this significant blood feud between the the Tijuana cartel and and CDS and El Chapo. I mean, and we're with respect to the you know Ramon and Benjamin, the the two brothers and El Chapo. It is as much of a blood feud as you can possibly have. You know, all kinds of stories. Remember, there was the the shootout um, in November of ninety two at the Christine Discotheque in uh, Puerto Vallarta. Where, um, you know, El Chapo's men come in, lots of gunfire, um, six people were killed, the brothers somehow escape, and uh, then more, you know, there's back and forth of people getting killed. Big, big change happened when the, uh, the Ariana Felix brothers thought they had a chance to kill El Chapo at the Guadalajara airport. And this is in uh, May 24, 1993. 
And uh, instead of killing El Chapo, they killed the uh, Cardinal and Archbishop of Guadalajara, Juan Jesus Posadas Campos, Ocampo, sorry. Um, that changed public perception quite a bit. And as a result, um, you know, the, the tension was, um, was ratcheted up dramatically at this point in time. Uh, Guzman flees to eventually to, um, to Guadalajara, or I mean to Guatemala and, um, ends up being arrested. Um, he escapes from prison um, in uh, 2001. There's a manhunt for him. Um, he, uh, you know, somehow is able to um, to withstand kind of the scrutiny and things. In 2006, Felipe Calderon becomes the president of Mexico, and at this point in time, he announces a, a, a different position on the relationship between the Mexican military and the cartels. And there seems to be this sine wave of, you know, how did how Mexican presidents want to deal with the cartels. But Calderon came in and really wanted to crack down on things. And... um the two big groups that got kind of lumped into that were to some extent, the, the Zetas and the Tijuana cartel. El Chapo and, and the Sinaloa cartel somehow survived this, um, you know, this era. There's a Newsweek investigation. If you, yeah, I hate to use Wikipedia because it's wrong. A lot, and especially about this. But if you go on Wikipedia, it'll take you to a Newsweek investigation. And I've looked at the Newsweek article, and I don't know if it's true or if it's not. But there's the allegation that El Chapo played both sides. And he garnered some safety, some security from the military by informing on his rivals. Okay. Is that really true? I don't know. Um, and I've tried to find things in the um, in the Sedana Hack documents that um, that reveal whether this was true or not. And, and thus far, um, I haven't found much in part because they don't quite go back far enough. But what we do know is that one of the things that happened is in about 2008-2009, um, several members of the Beltran Leva organization were arrested. And the BLO, those people who were um, arrested, and keep in mind that Alfredo Beltran Leva had previously worked with El Chapo. Okay. 
he gets arrested, others are arrested, and they place um, the blame, the BLO does, on El Chapo. And as a result, there becomes another bitter feud where lots of bloodshed between the BLO and uh, CDS. El Mayo's kids get involved. I mean, it's it's um, it's pretty awful. Um, you know, and and at that point too, the BLO and um, and Sinaloa cartel are officially you know separated. New cartels again. I you know I I love when um you know, you know when when. Journalists or others say, you know, there was a split on such and such date. I, I think it, it's more of a fluid type of situation than that. All right. El Chapo's arrested in 2014. Um, he escapes again. There's a manhunt for him. Um, and then he does stupid things. <laughs> okay. Um, so a Mexican actress, Kate Del Castillo... Um, she had previously, uh, published an open letter to Guzman, you know, to, um, and I'm reading here from, uh, something in Wikipedia. She published an open letter to Guzman in which she expressed her sympathy and requested him to traffic in love instead of drugs. Um, eventually there becomes this meeting between, uh, this Mexican actress, Kate Del Castillo and Sean Penn, <laughs> and he goes along, and they have this meeting at um, at a house or a hideout in the mountains. Allegedly, Sean Penn does this interview for Rolling Stone. He goes on, um, or Sean Penn does after the fact, and he goes on, you know, Larry King and everything else, and talks about this. And in the the discussion with, uh. With Sean Penn, El Chapo admits, basically, yep, I'm a drug dealer, and I supply more stuff to the United States than anyone else. Uh, you know, if you wanted to poke your fingers you know, in, um, in the eye of the Mexican government, in the eye of the DEA, you know, that's the best way to do it. So... Uh, he actually gets uh, recaptured in January of 2016, and he is um, eventually extradited to the United States in uh, January of 17. So again, we've talked about this a couple times. Takes about a, it took about a year. Uh, he ends up getting sentenced to life in prison, and right now he lives in uh, Florence, Colorado, just down the road from me where he is at Supermax in Florence, uh, you know, the most secure prison in the U.S., uh, and, and frankly, maybe anywhere. Um, we've talked about it a couple times. He's been pretty vocal in the media at various times, um, complaining about just, you know, how rough life is in, in Supermax and things. All right, so El Chapo leaves, 
and there becomes a bit of a power void, right? El Chapo's in prison. He's in, in, you know, gets extradited. El Mayo's still there. El Chapo's kids, at least some of them, had become somewhat active in the cartel. Again, it's really, really hard to know exactly how this all progressed. But at least four of them had some role in the cartel while their father was still active. And let's talk about kids for a minute. I think the official numbers are 15. He had 15 kids, maybe 24. I've seen a couple of other numbers. Who the heck knows? He's been married probably four times, um, has had more girlfriends, shall we say, than just that. So uh, when we're talking about Los Chapitos, let's talk about four in particular. Okay, You've got Ovidio Guzman Lopez, also known as El Raton, which is the mouse, not the rap. Um, and he's been in the news a lot recently. We'll talk about him in a second. You have Ivan Archivaldo Guzman Salazar, Jesus Alfredo Guzman Salazar, Alfredio is his nickname, and then you have Joaquin Guzman Lopez. Um, I've, Ivan and Jesus, just real quick, were the two who were kidnapped in uh, Puerto Varda by CJNG folks and released. One of the things, and, and we're going to talk about this in a, in a minute, but one of the things that, that strikes me is they were in a an upscale restaurant in the tourist section of Puerto Varda. And every time this stuff comes up, you, you're you like, really? This is where you're hanging out and, and hiding out? But um, so you've got the four Los Chapitos. Now, apparently what happens is at, at the same time, You've got Rafael Caracantero, who has been freed, right? He's um, hiding out in, in Sinaloa somewhere um, or in Caborca, his hometown. and Who knows? El Chapo goes to jail, and there's a, a bit of a power void. And one of the things that happens sometime in this, this time frame is... Rafael and Miguel Carl Quintero say to El Mayo, we would love to come back and be a formal part of the Sinaloa cartel. El Mayo says, that sounds pretty good to me. Cool. Los Chapitos say, over our dead bodies. And that becomes the split between Los Chapitos and those loyal to El Mayo within the Sinaloa cartel. The degree to which there's a, a you know an irreparable split, we'll talk about in just a second. But there's clearly a division between the groups at that time, and Los Chapitos, La Chapiza Cartel, depending on how you want to characterize it. But they really start actively running their own, if not cartel, their own faction of CDS. Um, what do we know about Los Chapitos? Very, very little. What do we suspect? A little bit more. Um, 
here's some things that are that I think are are fascinating, or at least interesting. So, as you know, Ovidio Guzman Lopez Alroton was arrested in Culiacan in um, the beginning of of January, right? Um, he was the only one who had an arrest warrant in Mexico. None of the remaining ones have warrants in Mexico, though almost all of them have warrants in the United States or indictments. Um, It is suspected that, generally believed, that the main strength for Los Tapitos is in Culiacan and in some of the urban centers of Sinaloa and on the Pacific coast. That's where you've seen some... um, and you're going to see more turf battles between uh, Los Chapitos and CJNG, really that um, Pacific Coast route and, and um, you know, base of, of, of operations in uh, Puerto Varda and other places. Um, it's, it's interesting that when Ovidio was... Um, was captured in the, in the last, you know, in the few months after that, or a few weeks, excuse me, there's been lots of discussions. And apparently, according to the press, and, and, and in, in ways that you have to believe, so he was hiding out in, um, oh, what's the name? I'm sorry. Um, anyways, he was in a neighborhood in, um, in Culiacan. At a house, was arrested there, flown to Antiplano um, Penitentiary. We'll talk about the reaction afterwards in in a, in a moment. But um, apparently, the fact that El Chapo's son, one of the leaders of Los Chapitos, was living in this you know residential neighborhood of Culiacan was an open secret, and so you know you keep seeing. Recently, important traffickers being arrested who aren't in the middle of nowhere. Now, Rafa kind of was, kind of. But you're, you know, again, you're right in the heart of Culiacan. And so that has to say, at least to me, not being a, a... a law enforcement person, that they feel safe and secure in certain areas. And Los Chapitos feel safe and secure in Culicon, in more urban settings. They are not people. Remember, I, we talked about El Mayo um, at one point, and El Mayo kind of said, you know what, especially in the past, they'll never catch me. I know every rock. I know every tree. I know every stream. These brothers aren't like that. They grew up in the city. They're not from Sonora. They didn't come from, you know, poor farming villages like their father did, like El Mayo did, like some others. So, um, Alfred Dio, okay, Jesus Alfredo Guzman Salazar, he is um, said to have maybe a more dominant role um, along with Yvonne, um, though 
I think we know a little bit more about Alfred Dio. He's the only one that's on DA's most wanted list of the the Chapitos. So that tells you something. There's also um, some rumors that he has closer ties to Colombian cartels, Colombian um, gangs than the others. Um, he's also showing up on social media more than anyone else. Not saying a lot, but there are very good pictures of him um, in Culiacan with female companions, uh, with fancy cars. I've seen less of it being reported in the last few months. Um, and query whether that changes based on his brother's recent capture. Um, Yvonne is also thought to be, along with Alfredo, kind of, I don't want to say the leaders, but taking a leadership role within the the Los Chapitos. Much, much less known about him. Uh, Joaquin keeps by far the lowest profile. So um, it, it, it is, it's, it's kind of funny. We know a whole lot about his father and we know much, much less about them. But we do know that a lot of the old feuds, the lingering feuds with the remnants of the Tijuana cartel, with the remnants of BLO, those feuds continue today within the Sinaloa cartel, and in particular within Los Chapitos. It's it's one thing to have a business fight, right? It's one thing to have a business fight that turns um, that turns violent. Business disagreement, all of a sudden it becomes violent. That's one thing. But when family members have been killed, when family members have been dismembered, when kids have been thrown off of bridges in the past, those things don't go away quickly. And in a later um, episode, perhaps we'll dive into the uh, the feud between the uh, Ariana Felix brothers and El Chapo and, and others. Uh, in a little more detail, it's um, it's gruesome, and it's it's sad in a way because so many innocent folks lost their lives, and and literal families were destroyed, and and, and almost wiped out. Um, all right, we talked about Ovidio being arrested. He's in Antiplano. Um, extradition has been requested or is being requested. Let's see where that really goes. Um, no idea at this point. Uh, we, we've talked in the past that the government um, has said, hey, we have, you know, he's he's wanted in Mexico too. Um, not sure if that's setting up an argument that he should be tried in, the, in Mexico first, but we'll see what happens with that. Um, let's talk about where this leaves the cartel. Um, 
The first thing we know is that El Mayo, who's older, um, you know, well into his 70s, um, apparently has diabetes, apparently is in bad health. Uh, he's still strong, right? I, the fact that there are still two factions of the cartel says something. That the people loyal to El Mayo are loyal to El Mayo and are not going anywhere, or at least haven't thus far. And again, when you look at all the things that have happened, all the feuds, El Mayo is not as directly involved. And so you wonder if the, you know, uh, the willingness to go after El Mayo as opposed to Los Chapitos from some of their enemies is different. Um, so that's number one. Number two, something interesting about Los Chapitos, and we've talked a, a little bit about this before, is um, they are taking a little bit more of a capitalistic, more modern approach to drug trafficking. And they've taken what was given to them or what they inherited, so to speak, from their father and expanded it. They've moved far more into synthetic drugs. Um, the cartel itself is by far the most international of all the cartels, at least at this point. Los Tupitos have gone into many more activities outside of just drug trafficking, some legal, some not legal. One of the things they've done that's fascinating, and I linked to an article um, in Insight Crime in my newsletter a week or two ago, but one of the things they've done is is tried to think about marijuana. And, that it, you know, now that marijuana is getting legalized in a lot of states in the United States, in Canada, probably going to be legalized in Mexico, you know, does that mean that the drug trade is over, um, at least for marijuana? And one of the things Los Chapitos have done is to say, all right, if it's going to become legal, we want to get in on the legal business. And there's a couple ways we can do that. Number one is we can come up with the best marijuana ever. I, I don't really know what that means, <laughs> but our product is going to be better than anybody else's. And we're going to start selling that, you know, while it's still illegal so that people get to like it. And then when it becomes legal, we're going to go and sell it legally to all the people who already like it. You know, it's like if Coca-Cola is illegal, get people to love Coca-Cola. And when it becomes legal, they'll keep drinking it and they'll buy it from you. And if we control all the distribution routes that are going to be used in the legal trade of marijuana, they'll have to come and use us. Or let me back up. Sorry, I think I said that wrong. If we control all the distribution routes for illegal marijuana, and those are the distribution routes that are going to be used when marijuana is legal, we'll control the legal distribution of marijuana. We'll make as much money from marijuana or close or a lot of money, and it'll all be legal. So the, the mentality of Los Chapitos 
is evolving. And I think that makes them um, interesting to watch going forward. They are, I I was going to say without exception, but they are at the forefront of moving cartels and the drug trafficking organizations in Mexico into the future where, you know, growing acres and acres of marijuana and, you know, heroin isn't going to be the future. Synthetic drugs, uh, legalized businesses may be the future of, of cartels. Um, one of the things, um, oh, a couple of other things. So allegedly, allegedly, in addition to having more control over um, like the urban centers, especially Culiacan, there's also some belief that they are doing a better job than El Mayo's folks at integrating themselves into some of the border areas, some areas of Chihuahua, uh, Sonora, even Baja, California. And we know that there is attention going on particularly in Tijuana for control of that corridor between CJNG, CDS, and working with elements or remnants of the old Tijuana cartel. Um, Lots of talk, lots of talk that the division between El Mayo and Los Chapitos created a bit of a vacuum and CJNG has been the primary beneficiary of that vacuum. And their expansion has, um, CJNG's expansion, has been largely attributable, not completely, but largely attributable to this division within CDS. Having said that, we know that there are battles in areas such as Zacatecas, such as Puerto Varda, uh, between CDS and CJNG. And I think the best information we have now is that Los Tapitos and El Mayo's factions cooperate reasonably well when their primary opposition is CJNG. Now, Here's what we don't know going forward. Ovidio gets arrested, right? There are a plethora of accusations, social media posts, um, rumors, innuendo that Ovidio was located and arrested because of actions taken by El Mayo or people working for El Mayo. And there are even people out there who will say that there is cell phone and other communications that evidence this, that the military knew where to go and when to go because they received that information from El Mayo. So what does that mean? Well, you you have the uh, the communique from the cartel that say, hey, if you don't release them in seventy two hours, 
we're going to go to war. The 72 hours has passed. Obviously, there was a lot of violence right after it happened uh, in Culiacan in particular. That seems to have died down a little bit. And so let's see what happens going forward with respect to Ovidio and and any retaliation or retribution against the government. And let's see what that does to the inter-cartel battles between El Mayo and Los Torpedos. I think that's going to be fascinating over the next few months to see where this really ends up taking the cartel, the degree to which the split becomes irreparable, and uh, the degree to which CJNG, La Familia Michoacana, and others take advantage of that. All right, that's about 50 minutes on um, El Chapo and Los Tupidos. It's about as brief as I can possibly do it. We are going to talk next week about the the two main cartels, CJNG and uh, CDS, and about some of the newcomer cartels, including La Familia Michoacana, and get a better perspective on exactly where things stand at the moment. So that's for today. Thank you to all of you who've gone over and looked at the YouTube channel. We're going to do a lot more over there. There are certain things that we we can do there with video and things that we're not going to do here. They're going to be the same, sort of, <laughs> in that there's going to be some overlap, but there's going to be different things for the most part. Um, but So check them both out. I really do appreciate it. If you um, want to get the newsletter, just a quick one-page read on what's happened over the past week, send in your email. And I really, really love comments, suggestions. What else do you want to hear about? There's a lot that we can talk about with respect to cartels and conspiracies and Camarena. Let me know what else you would like to hear, and I will do my best. Thank you for joining us, and I'll talk to you next week.